Here we are in the Gospel of Luke as we travel through the Scriptures. I had hoped, I mentioned to a few of you, that uh, perhaps we would look at the subject matter of the Holy Spirit, which is uh, a tremendous uh, emphasis in the Gospel of Luke, but nonetheless, uh, this is not that sermon. Uh, so, not, not ready for that this morning. But I would like to draw your attention to a few things in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, as um, we can consider the unique aspect of the Gospels. And uh, perhaps also, of course, look at the unique aspect of Luke in general as a Gospel. We know that Luke, as you consider the books of the New Testament, they all had apostolic backing. Uh, but you will also uh, likely recall that Luke was not an apostle. Uh, and so the backing, for instance, for the Apostolic backing for the Gospel of Mark would be the Apostle Peter, and that for the Gospel of Luke is Paul, the traveling companion of Luke, that great physician, and also a very esteemed historian. Um, Eusebius, the great Greek historian and church father, reports that Paul quoted from Luke, saying, according to my Gospel. And so we see the uh, connection there with the Apostle. As you look at the beginning, no doubt you recognize that Luke was very, very intent to present to his readers an accurate, detailed account of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, It is a different account. It is uh, a a long gospel, certainly in comparison to the gospel of John and the gospel of Mark. We see his meticulous preparation and research, and he wanted to make sure that people were reassured of the truth, as he demonstrates his credentials as an historian early early on in the book, right there in chapter 1, the first few verses. And I'd like to draw your attention today to five or six portions of the Gospel of Luke that particularly identify uh, what some would refer to as gospel reversals. Uh, that is, uh, this idea that uh, what you expect, perhaps, based on your experience of the world, Uh, isn't what the Lord Jesus seems to be inclined to do. And we know that, for instance, uh, our great God is typically crossing the expectations of men. And so he he, uh, is continually working his work in us, right? We know that uh, one of the great purposes that our God has is to humble the pride of man. And um, we, we discuss that idea a, a good bit in our midst. We see the scriptures seem to discuss the subject matter a good bit. And so that should reveal to us the, not only the incredible crushing problem that uh, categorically pride is for us, but also what it is that the Lord intends to do to free us from it. All the fruits of the Holy Spirit will be conspicuously humble. And this is an important aspect that no doubt we could draw from this gospel. All of the fruits, and I'm being careful to say, of the Holy Spirit have a conspicuous humility about them. Even if you were to consider uh, the violence with which the kingdom is taken, this idea of a narrow door that shows up in Luke's gospel, we see that even in the midst of that tremendous courage, even in the midst of that uh, really combative 
association with the things of the world in order to get into the kingdom by faith. This is the work of humility and courage, of a humble courage. Uh, and so it would be important that we see that here. And we, So this is a significant aspect of these reversals. You had read in your hearing this morning, chapter 1, verses 46 to 56, Some uh, know that as the Magnificat of Mary, and we see that she has a tremendous thing to say. And we see, for instance, in this passage, a significant reversal of the individual Mary, a humble young woman betrothed to be married, and she is anticipating, no doubt, a humble life, Uh, that would involve growing up in a faithful, observant home, uh, marrying, having children, and dying. And Mary indicates in verse 46, My soul magnifies the Lord, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. Verse 48, Behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. Now, Mary is a humble young lady, and so it's absolutely certain that she recognizes that those generations will call her blessed because of her association with Messiah, with the Lord Jesus Christ. A tremendous reversal that the Lord would select Mary in order to bring about the incarnation of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We also see in this passage what appears to apparently be normal for our Almighty God. It says, for instance, in verse 51, He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Again, as Mary is a perfect example of that. Verse 53, He has filled the hungry, with good things. I mean, that's a reversal in itself. Those who are hungry often don't expect to be filled. And if they do expect to be filled, it certainly isn't with good things. But God has promised that. He, he set the rich, He sent them away empty. He's helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. And so we see a beginning here of this idea of gospel reversals. And let's continue to look here. Let's look at chapter 6 now. In chapter 6, we have the Beatitudes laid out for us beginning in verse 20. And if you were to compare these with the Gospel of Matthew, no doubt you would see a tremendous similarity between them, but also some significant differences. And it seems uh, that many Bible students are persuaded that these are this was not the same occasion as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and I think that uh, whether it is or not isn't of utmost importance, but nonetheless we should recognize that these are very important, uh, that there's tremendous importance laid upon this idea of the Beatitudes and certainly followed up with the woes in verse 24 of chapter 6. But let's consider verse 20 to 23 in the Gospel of Luke chapter 6. I'd like to read those. Verse 20 to 
The Lord Jesus, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Now, while our Lord singles out the poor, the hungry, the sorrowful, and the hated, we shouldn't think that simply being in those physical categories means that we're savingly associated with the Savior. That would be an important idea. In other words, just because you don't have all the money you want and you live in some physical want, that doesn't mean that simply because of that you've kind of paid your dues in that way physically and the Lord owes you heaven. Nothing could be further from the truth. That isn't what the Lord Jesus is saying. He's not saying that because you have a terrible reputation with people around you that they hate you, that that the point isn't that, that you are finding favor with God simply because of that. We can lack favor with the people around us for all sorts of reasons. Certainly the gospel is one of them, but he, he, he would be important for us to understand what the Lord Jesus is saying. Consider who it is that he's talking to. Who, many of these thousands who followed the Lord Jesus, who were they? Well, many were the nothings of society. They were the overlooked. There were some who were of noble stock, But the Scripture says itself, not many among us were noble, right? Not many were wealthy, not many were in this way of society. And so the Lord Jesus is speaking to these people whose daily understanding was one of physical want and need. We know for a certain that the people, the the regular people of that day didn't have enough to eat. They, they worked uh, hand to mouth. Um, and, so, and so the Lord Jesus is speaking to them and wanting to encourage them, you who are poor now, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Consider the riches we have in Christ. The Lord Jesus himself introduced us to this idea of spiritual food. Perhaps firstly we see it in the Gospel of John when he's talking to the disciples as they come and encounter him speaking to the woman of Samaria. They say, did someone give you something to eat? And he said, I have food that you don't know anything about. And he's speaking to the disciples here in Luke chapter 6 about this same idea. No doubt we recognize that physical poverty isn't necessarily a blessing. But these listeners of the Lord Jesus... They were poor in earthly goods, so they were made aware of their spiritual poverty and of riches in God. As a matter of fact, we have one of the letters, one of the churches of Revelation, this same idea is brought up. The church at Laodicea, chapter 3, verse 17 For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing 
not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. One of the ideas here, when we come to Christ in spiritual poverty, spiritual poverty, not physical poverty, that it really is associated with the fruits of the Spirit. This idea that we know that we're spiritually impoverished. That we need a Savior. We agree with the Lord about our spiritual situation. And that's what also the Lord Jesus is getting at. He said, Blessed are you who hunger. In verse 21 of chapter 6 in Luke, you will be satisfied. The hunger here is a yearning for mercy, for peace, for forgiveness, for purity and holiness, for fellowship with God. And it's a very good question for us, right? Do you hunger? Do you hunger for the righteousness of Christ? What are you hungry for? Sometimes that's a challenge for Americans that live in this culture because Americans that live in this culture, we are identified often as the thing which we do. I don't typically appreciate it, but often those movers and shakers in our society identify me with a group called consumers. We're consumers. Right? That's how we're identified. In other words, we live a life saturated with the process of wanting things and getting things. And the Lord Jesus is addressing this. The real question at hand is, do we want the right things? And we see that the Lord Jesus builds the affections as the Holy Spirit begins to work in the life of the redeemed of that which we should want. Is there a yearning for mercy, for forgiveness, for purity and holiness? Are you desiring to be a consumer of the fellowship of the saints? And how will you take to yourself those things... He goes on to say in verse 21, Blessed are you who weep, for you shall laugh. Have you wept because of your sin? Because you grieve an almighty God? Sometimes in our lofty speech about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit... Sometimes when we speak so much of His transcendence instead of His imminence, sometimes we may get the impression that He is so stoic and far away from us that He doesn't notice. But the Bible is very clear that we, as individuals, grieve the Holy Spirit of God in our sin. Do you weep because of that and the Lord Jesus is saying as you do you will be restored and brought to joy blessed are you when men hate you when people hate you verse 22 
your reward is great in heaven. This is the same way their fathers treated the prophets. A growing walk of holiness as a result of being redeemed will inevitably bring the hatred and disdain of men. Now this is, in a way, unique in our culture because it seems that there are many evangelicals that are persuaded that if you can say the gospel rightly, and if you can live the gospel rightly, then you would bring the favor of all men upon you. That somehow you can speak the truths of an exclusive Savior... You can speak the factuality of the fact that our crushing problem isn't that we don't have stuff, it's that we're sinners and in need of a Savior. The Lord Jesus came for the express purpose of being a Savior, not a Santa Claus. And so, and so the reality is the Lord Jesus is telling us here that a growing walk of holiness as a result of being redeemed will actually inevitably bring the hatred and disdain of certain individuals. A thoroughgoing commitment to Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit will never be compatible with the world or with worldly so-called Christians. As you grow in your walk with Christ, you will begin to recognize that you have less in common with the world every day. And you will become to feel less comfortable in the world every day. And you will begin to anticipate the glories of heaven more every day. And you will begin to long more and more every day for that place that is in fact your home if you are redeemed. I love that passage at the end of Hebrews. Chapter 13, verse 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We have no lasting city here. We're sojourners. The Rechabites didn't build permanent homes. I'm persuaded it was a lesson in the transitory nature of a pilgrim of Christ. We have here no lasting city. Though believers should be growing in joyful acceptance of what the Lord brings them, He doesn't authorize a peevish irritability with life or cheerless view of the future which will bring the disdain of men, but not for reasons of the gospel. The Lord Jesus does not authorize a sour disposition. Even though if you're walking with the Lord and take His Word as fact, you know how this thing ends. 
How it ends for the unredeemed and how it ends for the redeemed. Martin Lloyd-Jones' work in Spiritual Depression is based on this very idea. From the front preface to the last page of the book, his thesis is that you have no warrant to be a joyless, cheerless Christian. That you have the power of the Holy Spirit, the living Word of God in your midst. We press on to chapter 6, the following three verses, 24 to 26. Woe to you who are rich. Again, the reversals. Many little children growing up, perhaps even in our own homes, will recognize the glories of wealth. And if they know one thing when they grow up, they want to have a lot of it. There's a significant reversal that's going to occur. The Lord Jesus is placing us on notice. Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are full now. Woe to you who laugh now. Woe to you when people speak well of you. For the impenitent, these woes are authoritative declarations of what will certainly come to pass. It is the judgment of God. Those who set their hearts on earthly wealth, earthly pleasures, and live the world of lies and flattery as they gain the well wishes of worldlings will most certainly not end well. I draw your attention to chapter 13. As we continue with this theme of gospel reversals. You look with me at chapter 13 verse 22. I'd like to read this 22 to 30. Chapter 13 of Luke, 22 to 30. He, that is the Lord Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. There was a widely held Jewish opinion that the whole of Israel would be saved. 
Jesus indicated that salvation was not nationalistic, but it was spiritualistic. Every tribe and tongue and nation will be in heaven. We're a new nation, a new people. We must strive to enter through the narrow door. Many will seek to enter and not be able. This idea of strive uh, is associated with the English word agonize. Uh, This idea of difficulty, of challenge, places us not merely on the field of battle, but it's the fight of our lives. You'll recognize, no doubt, that there's a different thing about going into the field of battle and being in battle. And this idea of striving is associated with that notion. Perhaps Matthew 11.12 would help. The Bible says in Matthew 11.12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong impression It's important for us to recognize that loud, angry men, as loud, angry men, they they don't have uh, the advantage in heaven. The point here, the point here, is that in the mortification of sin, it is mortal combat for us to get to heaven. The violent... Take it by force. It's very, very important. And one of the aspects that the Lord Jesus is referring to, no doubt, is simply this idea that nobody ambivalently falls into heaven. Nobody is going to wake up in heaven... thinking anything other than that the Lord Jesus Christ paid the penalty for their sins and that through great challenge and difficulty of mortification of the flesh did they get there. Nobody languishes and falls ambivalently into heaven. And so it would be really important for us to be placed on notice that if we're languishing and approaching the things of God with ambivalence, with a lack of concern, with a ho-hum kind of attitude, there is absolutely no reason for you to expect to be in heaven. Because if we know anything about the Savior, and we know anything about Satan, we know this, they are very serious. They are very serious individuals. They are very serious about your soul. And nothing is ambivalent to them. There is no neutral ground. Nothing that they are unconcerned about. Every single matter is a matter of life and death. There is the utmost urgency in Satan and his minions as there is in the Lord Jesus Christ. No one trips and falls ambivalently into heaven. Only those who find their way into the narrow door, as dangerous as it would be,
Only those will be in heaven. There will be an end to the opportunities to come to Christ. The Lord is warning the hearers that those who refuse to agree with God about their wickedness and ambivalence will not enter the kingdom of God. There will be a rejection of superficial relationships to Christ. In many instances, this is the only relationship people have. I just talked with a man this week that spent one hour telling me that he was persuaded he was redeemed because he enjoyed a wonderful breeze on a mountaintop. On the last day, what's going to happen is that, as Matthew puts it in Matthew 21.31, the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. They knew their spiritual poverty. And they knew that there's a fight to the death to mortify the sin in their flesh. And they come freely to God, recognizing I'm a sinner, the same as all of these nice, polished people. But I'm broken upon the cornerstone of Christ. I draw your attention to Luke chapter 15. Now, chapter 15 itself is a... A person could spend a lifetime in the chapter. It's a... It's about lost things that are found. There are actually three parables in chapter 15 of Luke. And one of those parables, no doubt, uh, is perhaps more familiar to you than the other. I would draw your attention to the parable of the prodigal son in chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. I point out only a few things. I'd like to read a few verses here, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 15. And he said, that is the Lord Jesus, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father... Give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. And when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Verse 20, And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Verse 22, the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put on him and put a ring on his hand 
and shoes on his feet. Verse 24, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they begin to celebrate. The prodigal son says to his father in verse 12, basically, Father, the fact that you're still living is terribly inconvenient for me. Could you give me all that is mine now? Now, this is a scandalous gospel reversal. Perhaps beginning with the utterly reprehensible question that the son asked the father. And then the next scandalous reversal is that the father says, Yes, I will give you that. He wanted nothing to do with the future of the family. And so there goes his son. He longed to eat what the pigs ate. Don't You shouldn't think that he ate pig food. He wanted to eat pig food. But he couldn't even get that. Have you ever fought a pig for food? He longed to eat what the pigs were eating. But no one would give him anything. And here's the father, likely an elderly man. Have you ever seen an old man run? It's not very dignified. And I think of David when he was worshiping the Lord when he was speaking to Michael. And he said, I will yet be more undignified in your eyes. But the Bible says in verse 20 of Luke 15, As he arose in his repentant Regenerated state, this prodigal came to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I will yet be more undignified than that. The father deflects all of that which had gone to the, have gone to the son, all of that disrespect, he deflects it and takes it upon himself. And he says, no, 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 we're going to slaughter the fatted calf. We're going to place the best robe on him in this ring. For this son of mine was dead, spiritually dead, and now he is alive. A gospel reversal that we can rejoice that He has done that for us as well. Now, a few words of application. The truth of the Gospel and the way of the Gospel is most commonly misunderstood. Exhibit A, of course, is the Pharisees and their wrong view of righteousness. The Gospel changes everything. The reality of poverty, of humility, of service, of human relations is now for the redeemed, changed forever. The Lord Jesus Christ gives to us that which is objectively real about these things. 
We understand the Lord Jesus even flips on its head and reverses this concept of greatness. He says, the one who is greatest among you is the servant. I serve. That's what he said. And so you would serve as well. When Christ changes your heart, enduring, long-lasting, noticeable, God-honoring changes occur. Let us pray.